Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. This is Paul Geesting, alias Dr. G, a lowly PhD in mineralogy. I'm writing solo today. Bill's not available. Bill's got paying work today, I suppose. So I'm going to be uh, captaining this one by myself. So we're t the subject I've chosen for today, I'm going to entitle, Is Your Metaphysics Up For This? So I'm going to keep reiterating this for these first few episodes because I don't want this point to get lost. I'm not an expert. I'm aware I'm not an expert in the subject matter that I'm going to be talking about here. I'm not trying to pass myself off as one. I am just a person who thinks it's important and that it probably makes a positive difference for human beings to live with as integrated and extensive and self-consistent a worldview as possible. But the things that you believe in one field of thought and your faith or your lack of faith or your faith in nothing be as consistent as possible with your understanding of other things everything from economics and the behavior of other people at the supermarket to what people are going to do on the road in politics and in psychology and in everything else that has to do with your life so to that end i'm talking about the worldview that i already have i'm talking about the things that come to me as i do the preparation for these episodes and I want to hear about you, your ideas, where you see problems with what I lay out, places that I could come to better ideas. Now, I think through discussions like that, people grow and better ideas that enrich the world come into existence. I mean, that's almost, I mean, that's almost too obvious to have to state my belief in that. That's what the entire scientific project is about. And in fact, that's what almost all fields of scholarship are about. At the very least, even if two interested amateurs like us have a discussion, and we don't come to our own better piece of knowledge, at the very least, the best books and the other presentations of expertise, the best other presentations of expertise can get sorted to the top and passed around and made more widely available and understood. All right, that said, I'm going to talk a little bit about metaphysics and its relationship to physics. So what is metaphysics? You may or may not be familiar with the idea that metaphysics is simply the philosophic study of what it is for things and for processes to be, simply to exist, to be what they are, to be their, which is often called essence, uh, and what it is for them to have properties that may or may not be critical for their essence, for them to be whatever it is that they are. So according to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I was just uh, perusing a little earlier, Aristotle's metaphysics was the first work to bear the title metaphysics. And that was, of course, not even from Aristotle himself, because Aristotle's works went through a long period where they were sort of chopped up and spread around, and it's only in the first century of our era that an anonymous editor, at least that's the best guess, um, took several pieces of Aristotle's writings and edited them into this part of probably a course in Aristotelianism that would follow Aristotle's physics. So that's really apparently where the name metaphysics comes from. It simply means after physics. We use the term meta now to sort of mean things that are behind or under, and of course that describes the subject matter of metaphysics very well. We're talking about, if we start with the objects in physics, the physical world that we know about, then we can see and we can you know, touch and interact with, and we can think about with Aristotle our everyday interactions with such objects. Metaphysics is then going to tell us about the rules that underlie that. 
inevitably for us to talk about being and beings and abstract concepts like that, we're going to be referring either to physical entities and relationships between them that we can perceive, or else we're going to be referring to our own specific thoughts, emotions, and other mental phenomena, or ideally, if we really want a broad understanding, we're going to be talking about both and giving both substantial weight in the course of our working out these ideas. Then we interpret these things that we see in terms of patterns. We come up with patterns, we see if the patterns fit, hopefully we actually criticize our ideas about these patterns, see if they actually work properly. In my own reading of metaphysics, and of course my peculiar, from my particular corner of the institution, I have read a lot of people who are either talking very directly about the medieval philosophers, such as Thomas Aquinas, such as, for that matter, Bonaventure, Albert the Great, William of Alvernia, uh, Giles of Rome, and so on. Or they're talking about, uh, or they're, they're engaged in the sort of neo-Thomistic project, where they're attempting to take this medieval Aristotelianism and do what's necessary to sort of bring it up to the present day and what we know about other things, or at least the philosophic thinking that's been done since then and answer some of the criticisms, and for that matter, criticize some of what's been done and some of what's failed to have been done in certain major modern philosophical traditions. In my own reading, therefore, I've come to the suspicion that there's a great deal left to learn, both from the positive content of what I've read and from their ta their talking about competing uh, schools of thought, that really there's a great deal left to learn by taking our metaphysical ideas and checking them against knowledge from a much wider range of classes of being, classes of process, and that sort of thing, and seeing where these ideas do and don't give sensible answers. I think for the most part, from, the medieval, from medieval times all the way to the present, mostly what happens is there's some brief introductory sashaying through the realm of physical objects at a very superficial level, and then a metaphysician is going to jump to the problems that he really wants to talk about, which are difficult to impossible issues like, what is human nature? How do human beings, for example, have form? What, what, what does that mean? Can I equate that with the human soul? That's an awful question that I'm not sure we were ever ready for, that we've ever quite gotten to the point that we've actually used the simpler stuff that's available to us to work through and come to working principles and allow us to deal with a question like that, let alone anything like angels or God. That would, that would be even further off into the future. I'm not sure what, what, I'm not sure that our foundations have ever been settled down to the point where we can really support the speculations on these sort of higher questions, or at least more interesting final questions. So anyway, to back to the medieval Aristotelian synthesis. It never came to a set of sort of full agreement on a number of important points. It was still the last closest thing to a universally accepted metaphysics that we've had in Western thought, not that there have been many competitors. For the most part, part uh, competition between multiple schools that may or may not have spent much time listening to each other in any useful sense has been the norm. And that medieval synthesis lent the Latin church, the Roman Catholic church, 
the language that it uses, uh, the best and most precise language that it uses to this day to explain many of its core doctrines. This is an example. So we, ha we have two options. We can either attempt to get, get uh, information across by developing an ad hoc jargon from subspecialty to subspecialty, which is what we do in modern science, or we can attempt to relate things back to a core metaphysics, and modern science has completely given up this idea, but that's still the way in which some, well, of course, after the Second Vatican Council, much less, um, but up to the 1960s, most Catholic theology was done with this common sort of metaphysics in the background. And there's a lot to be said for that approach, as long as your metaphysics is, to get back to the title of this uh, episode, as long as your metaphysics is up for this, which is to say, is it up for describing everything that we know about in physics? So let's come back to Aristotle for a second, and to, you know, the people following him, and, of course, you know, Neopl Neoplatonism and even Plato. There's this common idea that goes by the name of hylomorphism. It's a very simple idea. It's the idea that everything, or at least every physical object, is made of some sort of matter, and then that matter is given some sort of form. And so you may be familiar from you with the idea of, you know, Plato's idea that there are these forms, these capital F forms exist in some heaven or perfect realm of being somewhere, the perfect chair, the perfect man, the perfect pomegranate, I suppose, and that specific men, chairs, pomegranates, and every other object that we deal with somehow participate or have something impressed upon them from this universal form. Other important words in this concept are include, concepts include the concept of substance and the corresponding concept of accident. These get used very often as well. I mean, and then there's also the act and potency. I won't uh, necessarily be dealing with those concepts so much today. So let's, let's run down those four terms in order. So matter, or hyle in the Greek, which gives us hylomorphism, morph being shape or form. So matter in the medieval sense and matter in the modern sense of course, are now, that's, that's a confusing distinction in terms. So matter, in the ancient medieval sense, was just whatever an entity, a substance, was made out of. And that there was, in concept at least, not in reality, there could not really be any matter without form, but you could think of matter, abstracted from form, call it prime matter, or something of that uh, nature, and today we think of matter very much as something having mass. We think of it as particles. And of course, now we, now we have all of this uh, mechanism of chemistry and physics to talk about atoms and uh, objects having mass, having weight, uh, and all their other, uh, other physical properties. And we contrast that with energy as opposed to contrasting it with form. So that's, a, that's at least a difference in thought that could cause us problems. So, get back to the concept of form. All right, so the form is, in gross terms, the shape that something has, but it is also the properties that something has. So, 
if something has the form of an apple and it interacts with something else having the form of a cow, those forms with the matter that builds them up into a specific object, and that's, and that's a role that matter play, plays in this concept, is that matter allows you to individuate things. You have a form. A form by itself is like a class or a genus or a species, which were terms that were already being used by Aristotle. And in fact, the concept of genus and species, you know, the fact that that gets used in our Linnaean classification goes all the way. That was Linnaeus borrowing terms from Aristotle. So, so genera, genus and species go back and were being talked about liberally by uh, the medievals. But um, the Aristotelian concept of form is not as radical as the Platonic concept of form. And that was a debate earlier in the Middle Ages about whether, you know, universals had some sort of independent existence, whether the forms had some sort of independent existence. So this concept of form plus matter will then lead you to a substance. And this is where we have much worse confusion between the way the word is used in modern language and the way the word was used in the Middle Ages and is still used in laying out certain Catholic doctrines. So substance in the ancient and modern sense, in the ancient and medieval sense, my pardon, is something in its essence, something being what it is, using the, the term quiddity from quid in Latin just meaning what, the whatness of something, and that's a hard term to define further down, which is why the term gets thrown around so much by uh, neo-Thomistic uh, thinkers. The quiddity of something means it is exactly what it is, you know, by essence, in some, in some key way. What is the most important thing I can say about this object? So the most important thing I can say about my dog is that she's a dog. And all the properties that make her dog are critical to her substance. And that gets contrasted with the term accident. It is an accident that my dog is black. It is of her essence that she... And this, of course, is where we start to find in philosophy that things get uh, complicated. It is of her essence that she should have four legs, right? If I cut a leg off, she would be a three-legged dog, poor thing. And she would not cease to be a dog, yet it's also still true that it's of the essence of a dog to have four legs. She would be, you would be able to see visibly that she should have four legs. She would be, she would not be a naturally three-legged thing that would not, that would and somehow be interfering with her nature. And therefore have interfered in some sense with her, you know, substance there, there is the expectation of that fourth leg that's still part of her form, so to speak, philosophically. She's not in the room, so I'm glad uh, she's not listening to me talk about potentially cutting a leg off, which I am not going to do. Uh, definitely not going to... That's uh, not an experiment I see necessary to uh, explore this metaphysical concept. But the fact that she's black is an accident. You know, if I simply, you know, bleached her hair out and made her into a light brown dog... Nothing all that important would have happened to her. Nothing, nothing that changes her essence, nothing that changes her substance uh, would have changed. Color is usually that way. Now, of course, that's not the way we use the word substance. The, we use the word substance today for meanings like, I can think of the, the two most common ones I think of, 
are the substance of an issue, which is not that far off the medieval concept. It's the important part, right? What's the substance of this issue? Not the boilerplate, not the little issues that we can resolve once we've made the major decision. What is the substance of the issue? But the other thing that we use it for, and that we sort of almost, or at least I expect to hear when I hear the word substance and use somewhat formally, is the idea of a chemical substance, right? So what is a chemical substance? Well, it's close to the definition of a compound, which is something that is a single phase that's all the same composition. So I would not normally use the term chemical substance of a mixture, for example. If I have very pure quartz sand, almost all of it, and almost all, of course, you know, is that 99%? Is that 99.9%? Um, you would ha you'd have to come to a sort of ad hoc decision on that. But if, if, it, if it was that pure, I would go ahead and call that a substance. If it was a mixture, if it's dirty sand, as we might call it, if it's got feldspar in it, if it's got some bits of undisaggregated rock in it, uh, if it's got shale, if it's got some clay in it, I would not call that a substance, right? I would call that a mixture of substances. And of course, we already have the terms compound, and for that matter, in geology, we have the term mineral that we could use to describe all of those things. But a chemical substance, you know, and again, another type of chemical substance, if I have a jar on the bench, laboratory bench labeled benzene, all right, that's a liquid that's composed of one molecule, that's a chemical substance. Now, if I have hexane dissolved in the benzene, do I call that a single substance? Do I call that a chemical substance or do I call that a mixture? It's a single phase. There is no boundary between the one liquid and the other, at least not to my knowledge. I think those two would mix uh, completely miscibly. If, uh, if necessary, we can go back to ethanol and water, which we know mix uh, completely miscibly. A mixture of ethanol and water sitting there on the bench top. That's a single phase. Is it a single substance? Probably not, because the molecules in it aren't all the same. They all exist in the same phase of matter, but they're not all the same. So we use that term substance in a way that's really not... I mean, you can see some parallels, but obviously there's a big difference between the way that we use the term substance in chemistry and the way that the medievals use substance in philosophy. And that existence of that uh, distinction in terms is confusing. It's certainly confusing for me. I have to assume I'm not completely alone, as strange as I am, in that being potentially confusing for other people. That the medieval definition of substance is not widely understood by people in the modern world. So let's digress for a moment and think a little bit about... That's not really a digression. This is actually carrying out that project I was talking about of let's see if let's see if we can get to any more insight by simply considering things in a little bit more detail than is customarily done by people discussing metaphysics. So I'm a mineralogist. Let me trot out the question of minerals. So if you think about a mineral, what defines a mineral? Do you know? Maybe not. Maybe that's a little less common, hopefully, among my listenership than some of the other things I've been discussing. A mineral is... It, it has two critical components. To be a mineral, it needs to have a certain 
range of composition. It does not need to have a precise single composition. And the question of, you know, for example, my jar of benzene on the bench top having to have all or, you know, all to a criterion of 99.9% benzene molecules inside this jar. But it does need to have a certain restricted range of composition. And what do, so what do I mean by that? So one of the most common minerals in the Earth's upper few hundred kilometers is the mineral olivine. And olivine has the composition, if you write it down, Mg, Fe2, you put the Mg and Fe in parentheses and put the subscript 2 after it, SiO4. Well, what does that mean? Well, what that means is we go to the other part of the definition that it must have a relatively fixed crystal structure. And what does relatively fixed mean? It means that the, the geometric relationship between the atoms only changes in terms of distances, not so much, and very little, if I'm going to be adamant about being accurate as opposed to oversimplifying things, which is what textbooks usually do. The angles between given triplets of atoms cannot change very much. They must change very, very little. Topologically, in some sense, the crystal structure must retain certain properties. You can expand it or contract it a little bit, and some atoms will, in fact, the angles will change a small amount. But there are essentially specific points in a pattern that we call the crystal lattice. And oxygen atoms occupy certain of those points. Silicon atoms occupy certain of those points. And then, and those points are repeated through space. So there's a symmetry. There's something called a unit cell, and that unit cell is repeated in three directions to fill up three-dimensional space. And that pattern repeats over and over and over again. Every time you know that there are certain directions that if you move a fixed distance in the crystal along this direction, you will come, you will move from one atom's position to another atom's position. That's translational symmetry, and that's key to crystallinity. So a mineral must have a given crystal structure. There is a site, however, that can have a mixture, and it can, in the case of olivine, be any mixture you choose of magnesium atoms and iron atoms. It could be 100% magnesium. It could be 100% iron. It could be 50-50. It could be 10% iron and 90% magnesium. That's actually very common. It could be 80% magnesium and 20% iron. Rarely, it could be the other way around. It could be any, but it could be any fraction that you choose on that site. And as a matter of fact, manganese can be there, usually is to a small extent and certain other things. But there's a dedicated site that must have atoms that have a restricted range of properties. Magnesium and iron happen to be close enough. Manganese, magnesium, and iron, and a few other atoms will, can occupy that site stably. So that is, that's what's of the essence, is that there is a crystal structure, a lattice, with, that, can, that atoms of a certain size can occupy. So what are consequences of that? Well, there are physical consequences of that. That defines what the properties of the lattice are and the, the properties of the mineral are. So when you're learning about minerals, of course, you look at a mineral, and what is one of the first things that you notice, perhaps the first thing that you notice for many of us, is simply its color. And that's a really unfortunate thing because color is an accident. Color is practically always an accident. A mineral does not have to have a given color. Color is defined by, among other things, the exact mixture of those different metals, usually they're metals, like magnesium and iron, 
on the sites inside the crystal structure. And since those can change, the color can change. On the other hand, if you take a mineral, a large enough specimen to observe its uh, faces, the faces of the mineral grain, and you crush it, you break it with some sort of blunt instrument like a hammer or a screwdriver or an undergraduate's face, you can, uh, you can see how it breaks, and it will break according to many minerals. will have specific patterns of breakage called cleavage. There will be certain smooth faces that will appear, and those are a reflection of the interior crystal lattice. Those are actually, at least in some derived sense, of the essence of the mineral. Any crystal of olivine will have the, certain, the same cleavage behavior as any other grain of olivine. Here I must admit that uh, Forstrite is probably not the best example I could have chosen, because Forstrite's cleavage is actually very indistinct, but that is nevertheless an intrinsic consequence of its essence. That is something inseparable from it actually being Forstrite or olivine, is for it to have this imperfect cleavage. So, or we can take another mineral, of course, that's more familiar to us. Let's take halite, which is just table salt, rock salt. You can substitute a certain amount of potassium onto the sites that sodium normally occupies. And you can also change the color of halite a little bit. Sometimes it's pink. Sometimes it's a few other colors. But it will always break into cubes. For that matter, it will always grow. Its habit will also always be cubic. Those are of the essence of it because those reflect that internal crystal structure that's crucial to the identity of the mineral. So this question of accidents is interesting. We can recognize something as being not of the essence of a subject, of, of some class of objects, of some genus or some species of objects, even though we've never seen a counterexample. So people like to use black swans for certain uh, concepts in, uh, in philosophy. So let's, let's use the concept of a black swan. Suppose you're a person who's never seen anything but white swans. As far as you know, there are no swans that aren't white. And then finally one day you see this black bird swimming across the Rhine, ducking its head into the water, searching for food, and you, but you'll immediately recognize it as a black swan. Why? Well, because it has the same shape. It's displaying the same behaviors. It has a, a similar shape. It may even be larger. It may even be, gosh, it could be a giant swan. It could be six feet long. And yet you would still recognize it as a swan, because color and size are accidents. And you know instinctively that those are accidents. Because the essence of the creature is something else. You're sh you feel certain that the essence of the, of the creature is that it swims, it has a certain shape, and it ducks its head into the water to look for food. You know that those behaviors are all essential to swans. And yet, the size and the color are not, even though up to this point you've only ever seen swans that are within, you know, between two and three feet long, and they're all basically white. You'd be able to recognize that. So that's an interesting point, is that, and, and of course, sometimes we might get confused as to whether something, and frequently we do, whether, whether something is essential to something or whether it's an accident. And then we get into the question of, are we defining these things to be essential or not? Are we simply using these to choose what word to apply to things? Or is there some real distinction that we're trying to draw between them? In the definition of a mineral, there is a real distinction that we're drawing. We have thought about it, trust us, 
we have pounded on this idea for many, many decades. And this definition, there are very good reasons why we have the definition of mineral that we have. So that, in essence, is the subject of... So that's, that's an introduction to hylomorphism and an attempt to apply it to some scientific concepts. Zoology, I guess, I managed to work in at the end. And mineralogy. So in the next episode, we're going to see if this is or at least take a preliminary look at whether this is adequate to the challenge of modern physics. Can we take what we know about the universe, what we've learned about the universe in the last 100 years, 150 years, and explain them using this really old concept of hylomorphism? Is it up to the challenge? And if it's not up to the challenge, we ought to replace it, or at least we ought to modify it until it is, and then we should take it and use it to reinterpret our understanding of other things, things that we can't see, such as the God who made this universe to start with. All right. Hopefully Bill will be with us next week. In the meantime, by all means, get on tssm.podbean.com or our Facebook page, That's So Second Millennium, and, uh, and comment. Let us know what you think. Be looking forward to hearing from you, and we'll be back next week.